Open in your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 21. We're talking about the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. Here, this is, this is a, a significant turning point in Jesus's ministry. It's, a, it's something that Christians around the world today are honoring and celebrating. It's the kickoff of what some would call Holy Week. And you're probably familiar with the story. This is the story of Jesus riding in down the Mount of Olives, and he's approaching the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. And as he's on his way in, people start coming out into the streets, and they're cutting down palm leaves, and they're throwing them down on the ground in front of them, and they're taking their own coats off their back and laying it out on the path, and they begin to praise him, and they're singing, oh, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, you know, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the king, or blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're, they're sitting here and praising him, and then he goes into Jerusalem, and then he kicks off his final week of ministry. It's called the triumphal entry because there was something in that time, especially in the Roman era, called the uh, March of Triumph. And, and typically what would happen, and why this was all significant and with the symbolism in there as well, is because when a military leader would go out to battle, he would go out and maybe he would conquer a city. When he would, when he would go into the city that he's conquered, afterwards, he would come in riding a horse, and he would have his armor on still. And that was a sign of domination. It was a sign of his victory over those people. And so that was a bad thing when someone's coming into your city on a horse with all their armor on. And so that's not a time of celebration. It's a time of defeat. However, when he would return back to his own city, he would, he would come with his warriors as well as his captives, and he would lead them on a procession through the town. But he wouldn't ride a horse, he would ride a donkey. And he wouldn't have his garments of war on, but he would have uh, garments of peace on. And so he would come in, and this would be the time when everyone would be celebrating, saying, we won. We won. Like, like we're the, we're, our team won. And so it's a time of, of promotion for that guy and exaltation for him. And it's a time for everybody to rejoice because the battle has uh, been won and, and we have the victory. We have the triumph. And so that is the image that you see. And, and when, when people saw Jesus coming in on a donkey, they get this picture in their mind. And this is the Jewish people, they're not of that culture, but they're in the midst of it, so they understand it. And so they start to respond in like manner because they're expecting a conquering king to come in and set them free from all the Roman oppressors who have taken over their land and held them in bondage for so long. And so in their mind, they know that, okay, this Jesus might very well be the Messiah who's going to fulfill the promises of God to set his people free, to overthrow the enemies, give the city, give the land back to him and so forth, which he said he would do. Unfortunately, they didn't quite understand the timing of it all, but they were celebrating. And so uh, I want to walk you through some of these scriptures today that we, we find the, the triumphal entry in, and I want to talk about lessons from Palm Sunday. So have you found Matthew chapter 21 yet? We're looking at verses 1 through 6. And there's three things I want to highlight. This will be the first part. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, 
and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. The disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. First point that I want to talk to you about, the first lesson we learn is that the Lord has need of your donkey. The Lord has need of your donkey. Jesus was up here on the Mount of Olives, and he knows, I've got to get over there, and I'm going to do it in a certain way to fulfill the scripture. And so I need a donkey, <laughs> and I don't have a donkey. <laughs> but actually, I do have a donkey, because 600 years ago, I said I'm going to come on a donkey. And so 600 years ago, I made sure that I, I set it up in the schedule, I set it up in the plan that there's going to be a certain man in a certain place that had a certain resource that, that he was holding for me, that when I needed it to get down the road, I would call on it and he'd give it to me. And so he sent his disciples and said, go to this place and get that donkey. And they went and got that donkey. Well, see, it wasn't just by chance that he was going to ride a donkey. I mentioned this 600 years ago. There was a prophecy in the book of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah. He's, he's speaking about all kinds of things, but all of a sudden he throws this out there in verse 9, and we can read it from the screen here. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And then it goes on to say this. He says that he comes... He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So 600 years prior to this, there's this messianic prophecy. There is this prophetic word that says, your king is coming to you. And so when all the people started to see Jesus coming into town on the, the colt of a donkey there, then they remember the scripture and they remember the promise of God. And they realize this is the king coming in, and look how he's coming. And so that's why they begin to celebrate, and they begin to worship and so forth. It's fulfillment of the prophecy. God's word always comes to pass. Even when it seems like it's taken a long time, even when we don't understand how it could possibly work, even when it doesn't even make sense, God's word will always come to pass. And I love this passage here because we're reading it and we just see the faithfulness of God to his word. But then we see something that's just so interesting that, that the Lord says, tell them I need it. I need the donkey. I got a question for you. Is it possible that the things that you were given, the things that you have, were given to you not for yourself, but to hold on to until Jesus needs it? Is it possible that all your resources, all your treasure wasn't something that you acquired because you were really smart or invested well or worked really hard? Is it possible that it wasn't because of who you were brought up with? Is it possible because it, it's not just a simple matter of your giftings? Is it possible that you have all those things not because you acquired them on your own, but because God entrusted them into your hands to hold on to until he needs it. It's almost as if 
I come to you and I say, hey, I'm going on a trip. And I went to leave my car with you. You can use it. You could fix it up, put new wheels on it, nice stereo system. You could wash it. <laughs> you could gas it. You can maintain it. You can improve it. But when I come back, I'm going to need it from you. Now, if I did that, and you would say, oh, yeah, sure, that's great. Oh, I like your car. I'll take, I'll take care of your car. That's awesome. I'm driving around. You know, you're not paying no, no uh, monthly payments on it. You know, I've got it insured. It's taken care of. It's, it's yours to, to enjoy. But if I come back and I say, oh, can you come pick me up and just bring my car back to me? Wouldn't it be crazy if you said, no, man, that's my car. Oh, I don't, you can't use my car. Well, well, it's my car. Well, yeah, yeah, but you gave it to me. Well, I gave it to you to hold on to, to use, to enjoy, but, but it really belongs to me. How many of us do that with our stuff, with our treasure, or with our talents, or with our time when God asks of it? Oh, man, I don't want I, I to give, give that. You know what? This is, this is brand new. This belongs to me. I worked hard for that. This is my, my precious, you know, like Gollum there. My precious, the ring, right? The Lord has need of your donkey. He says, get the donkey, get the colt, something new, something old. Whatever it is you have that, that, that he has need of, what, wouldn't that be crazy if we were to say to God, God, you can't use it? God, you can't have it. Now, some of us, though, would say, well, you know, if Jesus comes and asks me for my donkey, of course. Jesus didn't ask them for the donkey. He sent his disciples to ask him for their donkey. I love that because I'm like one of those disciples that gets sent, and, and so often I get to come to you and say, the Lord has need of your donkey. Now, I'm a little bit more gracious than the disciples because they just went up to the donkey and untied it. And they're like, mm, we're going to take this donkey. The Lord said... Now, if I show up at your house with a bag, <laughs> the Lord has need of it. Just don't ask any questions. <clears throat> Verses 4 and 5 uh, is where it says, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. This wasn't just by chance, but this was done so that it could be fulfilled. Uh, God prepared 600 years in advance for this man to have the donkey so that Scripture can be fulfilled. God prepared in advance for you to have what you have so that the plan of God, the, the kingdom of God, the king can get down the road. Look here in, in, in the book of Mark, and we're going to go back and forth between these. Mark chapter 11 and it tells a little bit more of this story. It says in verse uh, 2, he tells him to go and, and find into the village and find it. Verse 3, he says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he'll send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. And some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. So they let them go. That's the kind of people we want to be. God, whatever you have need of, you can have it. Because we've got to recognize this, and this is so important. Everything that we have was given to us by God. And God has the ability and capacity to require it of our hand right now without question. 
And if we were to say, no, God, I don't want to give that to you and we're to hold back, God has every right to cut off any more flow into our life and even remove what we do have. And it doesn't matter how stable your job is, how great of an education, what's in your retirement fund, all of that can be gone overnight. Or what's even worse, if we were to get in rebellion towards God and say, what I have is in my, you know, created by my own power, my own hand, I'm going to do it on my own, God. What if you were to even lose your health and you have all that stuff and you couldn't enjoy it? In other words, our very life depends on God. And so everything that we have, it's a blessing from the Lord. We don't give God 10%. 100% of it belongs to the Lord. 100%. And everything that we have to enjoy, he says, I have no problem taking you right down the road with me and giving you more and more and more stuff to advance my kingdom. I have no problem as long as I have access to it. As long as God has access to what we have, then he has no problem putting more into our hands. Turn, turn to the person next to you and say, the Lord has need of your donkey. Second thing I want to focus, focus on is from Luke chapter 19. Same story. Luke 19, verse 35 through 40. After they brought the donkey to Jesus, they threw their clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And he, as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as, he was now, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I've been there to Jerusalem and, and Israel and on the Mount of Olives, and, and you can see these trees that they say, these trees are sold, the root system here, and, and the, the base of these olive trees go back to the time of Jesus. So you can go in the garden where Jesus prayed. I mean, the, the garden. This isn't like the story, like uh, King Arthur's Court or something. I mean, this is a place you could walk there, and you can see the stuff. And so... You're at the Mount of Olives, and then there's this little pathway down, and, and on this path, it's kind of a, a steep little windy road, and as you're going down, you can look, and you see the city of Jerusalem right there, and it's like a stone's throw away. In, in the Bible, you just, you can't really imagine how, how close all this is. You just, you just don't get it until you get it, and you see it, and Jesus is starting to come down that path, and, and people are seeing, and the momentum is building, and they're realizing, here comes the king, here comes the king. And the Bible says that they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they have seen. What I get out of this, the second lesson, is a great God is worthy of great praise. A great God is worthy of great praise. You see, they began to, to sing and, and, and to shout out because their king was coming. Now, they didn't understand what was going to happen. Sometimes we're like that to where we don't understand all that God is doing. They really expected God to do one thing, and he came to do another. They expected him to really come in and conquer, but he really came in to bring peace. But how he was doing that was by bringing a peace offering. How he was bringing that peace offering was himself. He was going to be the sacrifice to bring peace. He was coming into town lowly, 
humble, not like he's going to return, by the way, which is on a horse. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that he comes riding a white horse. He's got a sword in his hand. He, that's when he comes and he comes to conquer. He comes to, to, to destroy the enemies completely. But here he was coming in to bring a peace offering. And the people began to praise God with a loud voice. When we think about all that Jesus has done in our lives, it gives us reason to rejoice. Look at verse 37. It says, they began to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So they're not just simply having a song service because they like to sing, but they start to declare the things that God had done, the things that they had seen in their own life, the things that they had seen him do in their midst. And they began to shout and praise God because you remember that one lady who had a flow of blood and, and, and she was sick for so long and Jesus healed her. Do you remember those blind guys whose eyes he opened? Do you remember those guys who had leprosy and he healed them? Do you, do you remember that, that dad and his kid and he had epilepsy and he would, he would fall into the water or the fire and it was, it was a, a, de- a demon that was on him and Jesus cast him out and set him free and they're declaring all these things. What about the widow whose son was dead and Jesus touched him and raised him from the dead? What about the, the the, the crippled guy and the lame, these lame guys and, and the deaf and the mute and all this. And they're starting to sing all, and, and, and to shout and be reminded and remind one another about this. And they're telling each other, oh, and when he walked by me, this is what he did in my life. And these other people were sitting there saying, oh, we were there in the desert and we were hungry. There was nothing to eat. And he fed us all with five loaves and two fish. And they just begin to recount all the things that God had done. And their voices are raising. And they're shouting to God with great praise. Because a great God is worthy of great praise. It concerns me that we would enter into a time of worship and not express Great praise to a great God. And I think it's because we lose sight of the great things he's done in our own lives. And we don't, all, we don't remind ourselves and one another enough of what it is that he's doing in our midst. And our church family right here, we've heard testimony after testimony about people being, uh, being healed, about people who have been promoted jobs, uh, children who are promised to them after multiple miscarriages, finally having healthy babies. We have, we have stories uh, of relationships being restored, people who have given up on life, finding a reason to hope again. We have story after story after story, and we need to make those known. We need to continually shout those out and declare what God has done. You need to remind yourself on a regular basis what it is that the Lord's done for you. Because when you do that, suddenly it changes you from a victim to the victor. And that's what these guys had seen themselves just at this moment. Just for a moment, they forgot that they were oppressed. Just for this moment, they, they, they got their, their mind off of, of the, the hardships of life, and they got them on the king and the things the king had done, and it caused them to give God great praise. As a church family, we need to step beyond our comfort zone. Now, there's a lot of explanation and, and direction in the scripture on how to praise God. It says to lift up your voice. It says to make a joyful noise. I make a noise. It's not always joyful when I sing, but I do my best. God likes it. Uh, it says to lift your hands up. 
in his holy sanctuary. It says, clap your hands, shout to God with a voice of triumph. The Bible even says to dance before him. When I dance, I'm like a stick figure. (laughs) And so I'm uncomfortable doing that. And there's some times when, when you know, I, I, I do it. And there's other times I don't, but, but there's appropriateness at times to just get outside of your comfort zone. And, and I want to encourage all of you, we baptize in water here, not pickle juice. So looking like this during worship, let me tell you something, don't do that, okay? If you got the joy of the Lord in your heart, let your face know it. And let the worship team know it too, so they don't have to go out there after service every time and cry. <laughs> like they, they hate me. They just stare at me ugly, mean faces. Come on now. Let them know that Jesus likes you and you like Jesus. But not for their sake or my sake, but for your sake. Because when you start to think about the things God has done, you can't help but to give God praise. A great God is worthy of great praise. And by the way, praise paves the way for the perfect will of God to be done in our lives. Uh, The perfect will of God here was that Jesus would move towards the cross at that time. They didn't understand what the perfect will of God was, but yet as they gave God praise, it helped him move down the road to his perfect will being done for their lives. I don't always understand exactly what God wants to do in my life. And if I complain about it, or I, or I just look at my problems, I might miss out on the perfect will of God. But even if I, pr- if I praise God anyhow, <laughs> if I praise God anyways, if I start to not worry about what's going to happen, but I think about what he's done, then guess what? That, that bringing up the faithfulness of God in the past prepares me to experience the faithfulness of God in the future. It prays, creates the pathway to the perfect will of God coming to pass in your life. Do you know what God wants to do in your life? Maybe, maybe not, but give him praise anyhow. And as you position yourself before the Lord to give him praise and be thankful, he just moves right down that road to having his perfect will done in your life. How many of you guys say, I want that? I want that. Tell the person next to you, give them great praise. Give them great praise. Third, third thing, and this is found, let's go back to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, after Jesus makes his way into town, says that he did something. Verse 15 through 19, verses 15 through 19, says, So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple, and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And then the scribes and chief priests heard it. They sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Jesus goes to the temple, which is inside the city walls. 
And this is the place where God had set up to meet with his people. This is a place of worship. This is a place of celebrating God and honoring God and where, where the presence of God was supposed to be. And it, it was the meeting place. It was center to the Jewish life. Everything they did and every, every uh, custom they had, it revolved around the stuff going on here and what came out of that place. And uh, throughout the year at different times, and especially at one time of the year when, when, when they would bring their major offerings, but they would all, their whole life was centered around the worship that was supposed to take place there. But something happened along the way to where they lost that intimacy and that connection with God. And they became very casual in their worship of the Lord. They, in fact, the Bible says here that Jesus, he went in as, you know, he, he comes in like the lamb to the city, but he enters the temple like the lion. We see gentle Jesus riding on the donkey. We see angry Jesus make it, you know, taking off his belt and whooping some, some people. And he, and he doesn't say, okay, guys, pack it up, pack it up, time to go. But he starts overturning the tables. He doesn't care. I mean, Jesus is getting crazy. He's turning this place upside down. The passion of God on the inside of him rises up. And he, he, he does some things that we would say are out of character for him, but it's exactly within his character because his temple should be pure. His temple should be a place of prayer. His temple should be a place where his presence is and honored and there's a fear of God on the inside and a reverence and, and, and this sense of holiness. And that's been his intention because this is where God meets with his people. And so he shows up there and it's not like that. And it hadn't been like that for a long time. And he says to them, he says, uh, he, he says is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. You've made it a den of thieves. Here's what was going on in the temple there, and it references these things right in those preceding verses where it said he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. God set up a process years in advance when he, when he established the location for his temple for those who... Everyone was supposed to come to the, the temple at least once a year, several times a year, and they were supposed to bring an offering of worship. And, and that was their first fruits of their flocks and maybe from their harvest as well. They're supposed to bring this to the temple at assigned times every single year. But because some people would have to travel a long way for that, it's very likely that their offering would either go bad or if they're bringing their flocks, they might not be able to make it or it'd be an extreme burden on them to get all their stuff there to bring as an offering. So God instituted online giving. Well, it's sort of like online giving. If it was in this day, it would have been online giving. But he really does institute the process to make it easier for them so that they can still honor God and, and make it there. And so what he does, he said, is you sell your stuff back at home. You bring that money, and at the temple, on location, you buy new stuff, and you present that to them so that you don't have to carry it. So that really was a way that God set up a process to make it more convenient. And I'm serious about it would be online giving today. Um, Maybe. So I don't have a word from the Lord on that, but I do kind of see the principle there. Um, so he sets up this process, but what happened over time was people realized 
we can make some money off of this stuff. We can raise up and we can sell the second best quality and below to these guys for worship, you know, and then they can just offer that up, and, but we'll charge them the price for the first best. And so what ends up happening is people said, eh, whatever, you know, we'll just go ahead and do it. At least we're doing what he requires of us to bring the offering. And so they do that and they're giving God, they're worshiping God half-heartedly. And then they, 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 they break it down from there to, to their selling doves in the temple. What, what is that? What's the problem with selling doves? Well, the, the doves was a, a, an offering of sacrifice that you bring to God, but it was for the, the poor. If you couldn't afford a lamb, if you, if you didn't have any harvest, you could at least offer a dove. In other words, this is the least of the least you could do. But this is what worship had fall into at this point is, what is the least I can give God? And so my worship to God is no longer, I'm giving God my first, I'm giving God my best, I'm giving God my all. It's I'm giving God what is most convenient, I'm giving God what is easy, I'm giving God the least that is required of me. The minimum requirements Jesus, here's the third point, Jesus wants to purify us of half-hearted worship and a casual response to his presence. He drives them out. And worship that's not wholehearted is not worship at all. Worship that is not our best is not worship at all. David said, I won't offer to God that which costs me nothing. David was a worshiper of the Lord, King David. Jesus looks at this, and he says, that's enough. I don't want your doves. I don't want your half-hearted worship. We got to start from scratch here. We got to clean up the house. And then the Bible says in verse 16, it says, and he, 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 um, he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Where's goods. The temple was kind of in the middle, and to get from here to there, you'd have to go around it, unless you go through it. And what happened was people became very familiar with the temple and the presence of God. So now it's just it's just a thoroughfare. It's a shortcut to get from here across town. And they don't even value the presence of the Lord and the worship that would still be going on there. And their heart isn't even sensitive to the fact that this is a place of worship. This is a, this is a place to, to give God reverence. This isn't the stadium at the ball game when you're sitting there and, yeah, those guys are singing. Yeah, the, the priest is performing his stuff. And I think I'm going to go get some more coffee. This isn't that. Jesus is sensitive to the fact that people are not even paying attention. And, and I, I think of that, and I think how easy it is to get distracted, or even at our time of worship, that, that we don't want to become that to where we're casual with the presence of God, where we are not paying attention, and we're simply, oh, yeah, you know, I got to check this. Oh, I got to check that there. Oh, oh, you know, I just thought about this and this. Listen, we all fall into that, and they fell into it as well. To where they just weren't thinking, this is the time for the Lord. This is a place for God. 
This is not a place for me to do my business right here. This is a place for him. And there was a, a fear of God on the inside of, of God's people that he wanted them to have. Be, not because they would just be afraid of him. It's because he can show up and do great and mighty things. As a pastor, I want to encourage you to take the presence of the Lord serious and our time of worship serious. And don't look at it as, okay, I'll come in when the singing's done. Because we're not just singing. We're, we're entertaining the presence of the Lord. The Holy Spirit comes in like a dove. You know, we see when Jesus was baptized. And the Holy Spirit's not a dove. But he's like a dove. In other words, if you ever have the ability, you know, see doves land maybe on your window seal or, or, or close by and you're sitting there and you watch them and they're, 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 they're chilling, but they're always attentive and they're eating or doing whatever or they're cooing and you like it, you like their presence, but you make a, a sharp move like that and, and they'll flutter away quick. And so if you want the dove to stay, every movement you make is with the dove in mind. Every movement you make is with the dove in mind. And when it comes to the presence of the Lord, every movement we make is with the presence of the Lord in mind. And the way we live our life is with the presence of the Lord in mind. And the Bible says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And I think Jesus said, oh, my spirit's grieved here. And so he stops them and says, don't do that. Don't do that. But I want to highlight something that happens after Jesus cleanses the temple. And this is back at Matthew 21, and this is where we wrap up. Verse 13 of Matthew 21, he says, It's written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Those are two quotes from the Old Testament, from different verses. And then verse 14, I think, is so interesting. It says, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. After Jesus purifies the temple, after he cleanses the temple, then the blind and the lame, they come to him, and he heals them. The idea we get is that prior to that, there's nothing miraculous happening in that church. Prior to that, there's no power of God showing up at church. But when Jesus shows up at church, and he brings cleansing, and he purifies and sets things in order in church, then suddenly people start getting healed, and the power of God starts to flow, and people who are blind can see, and people who are lame and limited can walk now. God wants to do a work in us so that he can do a work through us. You are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells on the inside of you. You were bought at a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You belong to him. He doesn't dwell in, in, in temples made with hands. He dwells in bodies purchased with his own blood. His spirit is on the inside of us here. And when he brings a cleansing and a purifying, when he does a work on the inside of you, it's so that he can do a work through you. It's when God did a work in the temple that he did a work through the temple. God wants to do a work in you today so he can do a work through you today. The power of God. You notice Jesus didn't cleanse the temple and say, that's it, we're shutting the doors. 
No, he said, I'm setting things right. There's a rebuke, there's correction, but now we're open for business. There's a new manager here, right? New owner, under new management. And then what God intended from the first place began to happen. How many of you would say, God, do a new work in me? Do something in me. Clean me up. 